Thanks for worshiping with us again today. It's really hard to believe that the month of May is ending. Before we jump into our study year long about how to live and love like Jesus in the Gospel of John, I want to take a few minutes just to share some of the uh, feedback we received from the survey that we asked you to complete over the last week. First of all, we received 778 surveys back and the feedback and perspective has been really, really helpful. We found out that 78% of the people who responded have been worshiping with us online every week. And that means a lot to us. We really appreciate you engaging. Here's what we also found out, that about a third of you are ready to jump back into public in-person worship services immediately. Another third of you are kind of hesitant and, and need a little, more bit, a little bit more time. And uh, there's less than a third of you that are, are just completely reluctant and just like, it's not the right time yet. We really appreciate the feedback we received, the affirmation of how our church leadership is, is guiding our congregation through this time. We also appreciate that uh, you recognize that there's lots of dynamics that go into making a decision about how to convene again in public worship services. And certainly the number of people that God's entrusted to us uh, as shepherds, we have a lot of dynamics to think through. And we want you to know just some of the values that are helping guide this uh, decision. First of all, we want to honor God. We want to do everything to bring him glory and take our leads from him. That's why we're fasting and praying. That's why we're covering uh, this whole decision in prayer. Also, we want you to know that it's important for us to care for the vulnerable and maybe those who are uh, in a, a specific age group or who are maybe highly susceptible to uh, the spread of a disease. And so we want to be very mindful about them and, and defer to them as we think about the decisions we have to make. And also, we want you to know that it's our position. We feel led to be respectful to the government recommendations and also those for healthcare professionals because we believe Romans 13 teaches us to be submissive to those in authority. And we do that in obedience to God, not just in recognition to man. We also want you to know that uh, we're grateful for those who've been worshiping with us online. And we've heard feedback from many that they've, they've really appreciated this time as a family to worship together. It's a, a unique time where families can gather in their living room and worship together and, and engage in worship together. And they've, many have found that extremely meaningful. As we continue to make a plan to regather in the near future, I want you to, to keep praying and we also ask for your patience. An important piece to know up front about maybe how the recommendations would impact our, our, our gatherings, how the CDC recommendations would, would maybe even impact what we know and, and have experienced in the, in the past. First of all, social distancing means not only not giving hugs or handshakes, but it also limits the capacity for all of our worship venues as a church. It would significantly limit the capacity of both our Newburgh campus and also our West campus. The recommendations to not offer children's programming obviously is, is a big impact for us as a church because we believe in ministering to kids and to their families. That decision won't be made by our government officials until at least July 4th or even after. We've been asked not to offer spaces to hang out or, or to serve food. So no community food or drink, no gathering in the atrium to, to just be uh, together. Uh, that would be closed off and that would be a significant impact. Also, just the, the cleaning of a facility during and after the service. Some recommendations have encouraged no uh, singing in public gatherings. And, and there's also no passing out of other items that we're used to during our worship experiences. 
So while we're looking forward to the opportunity to gather again, we're also wrestling through all these dynamics, not just logistical changes, but also like relational and emotional challenges because our gatherings will look different than what we've been accustomed to. But with all these recommendations and how they might impact our gatherings, we continue to make a plan for regathering. I ask that you would pray for our elders as we meet this coming week to finalize our game plan. And we want you to know that we'll be communicating what our game plan is from June 14th on next weekend in our weekend services. I also want to encourage you to continue being the church. I want to encourage you to continue to gathering as families or in groups as we worship online. Invite people to join you. I want to encourage you to continue giving and also serving. And finally, we've been asking you to join us in fasting and prayers. We seek what it looks like to, to go to the next level in our living and loving like Jesus as individuals, as families, and certainly as God's church. And we'd encourage you to check out our website where you can provide, uh, be provided resources and how to engage in being the church during this season. You can go to cccgo.com forward slash church. You can also find a way there to share with us some of the things that God has been saying to you as you fast and pray. This year, we've been studying through the book of John and we've been trying to learn how to live and love like Jesus. And today we're going to witness a moment in the life of Jesus that truly displays his identity and his mission here on earth. And we're gonna see that Jesus is full of grace. Why don't you turn with me to John chapter eight. As you do, you might notice that in your Bible, there are some brackets or, or some footnotes around the, the first 11 verses of John chapter eight. In my Bible, these verses are in italics. These verses are actually not found in the most reliable original manuscripts of the gospel of John. Some translations even omit these verses altogether. Now, there's a lot of material out there that speaks to why these verses should or should not be included in the sacred scriptures. Most of the debate surrounds textual or linguistics inconsistencies with the rest of the book of John. Some uh, question this awkward timing or placement of these verses in the narrative of the gospel. And some even question John as the original author. But no one, no one questions the authentic representation of the life of Jesus or doubts that the event occurred. Some have said this is the authentic Jesus material. It seems exactly like the sort of thing that Jesus would do. So with that in mind, let's check it out. Last weekend, Andrew Bondurant, he took us through chapter seven where the religious leaders were grilling Jesus about his authority and, and the claims that he made. They, they questioned his true identity. And John records that they are looking for a reason to kill Jesus. Well, Jesus challenged their understanding of scripture by his teaching, and he rattled their positions of authority by exposing their hypocrisy and their impure motives. We'll continue to see this over the next several chapters in John. Ultimately, their jealousy of Jesus and their attack of Jesus led to his being crucified at their request. Jesus has been traveling back and forth to Jerusalem, attending religious festivals and teaching in the temple. And since he had no home for himself, Luke 21 verse 37 says that Jesus often spent the night in the Mount of Olives. That's where we find him in John chapter eight, verse one. We know Jesus prayed there. We know that he was arrested there and he also ascended from there. Let's pick up John chapter eight, looking at verse two. Read with me. At dawn, he appeared again in the temple where all the people gathered around him and he sat down to teach them. 
The teachers of the law and the Pharisees brought in a woman caught in adultery. They made her stand before the group and said to Jesus, teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. In the law of Moses, Moses commanded us to stone such a woman. Now, what do you say? They were using this question as a trap in order to have a basis for accusing him. As Jesus was teaching in the temple courts that day, the religious leaders took another opportunity to try to challenge Jesus by setting a trap for him. Now, there had been several traps that the religious leaders had tried to catch Jesus in uh, throughout his ministry. They asked him, hey, should Jews pay taxes to the Romans? They asked him, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? Which is the greatest commandment? Every time Jesus provided a wise response into these uh, traps by the religious leaders. Many scholars feel that the religious leaders in this moment pull out all the stops by arranging for this woman to be enticed into committing adultery so that they could trap Jesus. It was a setup for the woman and also for Jesus. Several of the details about this moment reveal their motives. First of all, they drugged this woman into the temple courts. They public embarrassed her. If they truly were interested in determining her guilt and punishment, they could have accused her in a private court. She was simply a pawn in their scheme against Jesus. They also misquoted the Old Testament law. Deuteronomy 22 records the prohibition of a man having sex with anyone other than his wife and mandates that both the man and the woman caught in adultery to be put to death. Stoning was only for a time when a woman who was a betrothed virgin had broken her vows. Obviously, this sinful act could not be committed by one person alone, but the religious leaders only bring the woman to Jesus. This is a picture of the, the chauvinistic attitude toward women in this day. And it also shows that this was a sting operation motivated only to trap Jesus. And again, with little regard of the ones they were using in the process. They speak of this woman being caught in the act, which was required by the Old Testament law for a, an offender to be executed. Deuteronomy 17 requires two to three eyewitnesses before a person could face capital punishment. Now, uh, they, also these eyewitnesses were the first people to cast a stone. And that's significant as we'll see just a little bit later. Their eyewitness account shows, that the, the, shows their cards and it really begs the question, where were these guys hanging out when they caught this woman in the act? And finally, their demand for stoning was just fueled by their lust for blood. Stoning was a little more than a mob lynching. It was community injustice at its worst. It's not something that religious people would do. They felt they had placed Jesus in a trap because if he agreed for her to be stoned, then that would be violating the Roman law, which did not offer the Jews the ability to enact capital punishment. It also would contradict Jesus' interaction with other sinners. Remember, Jesus was accused of being a friend of sinners and tax collectors and other irreputable people. If Jesus stopped her from being stoned, he would be negligent of upholding the Old Testament law. And he had already stated, he didn't come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. There was no question that this woman was guilty of committing adultery. But how did Jesus respond? Well, let's pick up in verse six and see how Jesus does. Jesus bent down and began to write in the ground with his fingers. 
When he kept on questioning him, he straightened up and said to them, let anyone who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. Again, he stepped down and wrote on the ground. Jesus had been sitting as he was teaching in the temple that day. That was a, a common posture. He now bends down, John says, and some say that was maybe to shield his eye from a, a half-dressed woman or just to spare her any more public embarrassment. Jesus always valued and honored others consistently. He begins to write in the dust. What he writes in the dust has more speculation about it than what the original source of this moment in the life of Jesus is. Some think he was writing out the Old Testament law because the religious leaders had misquoted it. Some even think he might have been writing out his verdict that he was going to give. That was very common for a Roman magistrate to do in the first century. Some think he was listing the sins of the religious leaders who were accusing this woman. That would have been a fulfillment even of prophecy. Jeremiah 17 verse 13 reads, Lord, you are the hope of Israel. All who forsake you will be put to shame. Those who turn away from you will be written in the dust because they have forsaken the Lord, the spring of living water. Most scholars feel that Jesus was refusing to play the game of the religious leaders. He was refusing debate. You know, it's not any fun to fight with someone who won't fight back, right? But these religious leaders, they didn't give up. What Jesus says is certainly more important than what he might have been writing in the dust that day. John 8, verse 7, Jesus responds by saying, let any one of you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. Jesus was not dismissing the woman's actions. He was reminding the religious leaders that she wasn't the only one guilty of sin. While she might be guilty, so were they. The qualifications of stoning prevented anyone from throwing a stone that day. Jesus said, if you're without any sin, go ahead and begin. The ones who came to Jesus to shame him now leave in shame. They realized that they were just as guilty as the woman. And they also recognized that Jesus has once again escaped their trap. The trap caught those who laid it. So they left the oldest one exiting first, either because that person had more sins or they were maybe just more willing to admit it. You know, I think as we mature, we should be quicker to accept responsibility for our actions and really not pretend to have it all together. The fact that all the accusers left that day was perhaps a, a silent acknowledgement that in many ways they were no better off than her. Let's look what the last two verses say. John chapter eight, verse 9, 10, and 11. At this, those who heard began to go away one at a time, the older ones first, until Jesus was left with the woman still standing there. Jesus straightened up and asked her, woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, sir, she said. Then neither do I condemn you. Jesus declared, now go and leave your life of sin. Jesus spoke to her, not at her or about her. It was the first time in this moment that anyone even addressed her. And when he says woman, it was a tender response, much like Jesus looking down from the cross and addressing his mom. Jesus is full of grace. He doesn't dismiss her sin. He offers her forgiveness. It's imitable grace, which means it's worth emulating. It's an example to follow. Being graceful is true to Jesus' character. In John chapter one, verses 14 and 17, it says that Jesus is full of grace and truth. 
In this moment, he dealt in truth with both the sin of the woman and the religious leaders and offered grace to both of them. He came not to condemn the world, but to save the world, John 3, 17 says. In chapter four of John, we see Jesus interacting with another woman who was at a well in Samaria. And his interaction shows value of this woman, even with a sordid past. And he, his challenge to this woman echoes the words he gave to the man who was paralyzed that he healed in John chapter five, when he told this man, stop sinning or something worse may happen to you. He refused to condemn her, but he didn't condone her sin. She was guilty as charged, but Jesus is full of grace. He's asking her to demonstrate a heart of repentance, which should go hand in hand with anyone who receives grace. His character and his mission are on full display. And that leads me to a, a moment where I want us to engage in, engage in some discussion. If you're gathered with others in your home or, or with a, a group of friends, I want you to take this discussion question and discuss it among you. Maybe you're uh, worshiping with us by yourself today. And I would encourage you to maybe pull out your journal or, or maybe text a friend or even call a friend during this moment as you think about this question together. Here's the question. I want you to share a time when you were guilty of doing something wrong, but you received grace. How did that make you feel? Discuss that right now. of mine from here at Crossroads named Brian is a, a school teacher. And during the summers, he's had some creative job opportunities. One of my favorite jobs that he did one summer was working for the Coca-Cola company with a program they called Caught Red Handed. And Brian's job was basically to go from store to store in any nook and cranny throughout a specific region. And he was loaded down with a trunk full of prizes. And his job was basically to go into any store and anyone who was carrying a Coca-Cola product won a prize. They were caught red handed and he would reward them for buying a Coca-Cola product. Now, I think all of us can relate with this woman who was caught red handed. You know, we recognize just like the Apostle Paul who said these words, Christ came to save the world sinners of whom I am the worst. You know, the good news of the Bible, the gospel is this. Jesus is full of grace. 
Listen to what John says in his later epistle, 1 John chapter 1, beginning in verse 5, all the way through chapter 2, verse 2. It says this. This is the message we heard from him and declared to you. God is light. In him there's no darkness at all. If we claim to have fellowship with him, yet walk in darkness, we lie and we don't live by the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, purifies us from all sin. If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sin, he's faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. If we claim we have not sinned, we make him out to be a liar and his word is not in us. My dear children, I write this to you so that you will not sin. But if someone does sin, we have an advocate with the father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins and not only for our sins, but also for the sins of the whole world. I hope that if you feel like that woman today, guilty as charged, embarrassed, expecting to be condemned, that you'd come to know that Jesus is full of grace. He offers you forgiveness, not condemnation. The only one there that day who was sinless and was qualified to throw a stone offered grace. And he will do the same for you. Simply cry out to him, admitting your need for him to save you by saying, Lord Jesus, son of God, have mercy on me, a sinner. J. Vernon McGee says this, A great many people think they are lost because they've committed a certain sin. One is not lost because he's a murderer or a liar or a thief or an adulterer or because he has borne false witness or committed other sins. A person does these things because he is lost and does not yet believe in Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ forgives sins. He is the savior. He died for the sins of the world. Today, If you want to receive that grace that God offers you, I would encourage you to pull out your phone right now and text now to 812-858-8668. We have friends who are ready to help you understand what it means to receive God's grace and also take your next steps in a relationship with God. You know, my fear is that, that those who need God's grace will refuse to accept Jesus' offer today. I also, though, fear that many of us who've received God's grace find it difficult offering it to others. While many of us might be able to relate with the woman, I think often we find it difficult to see ourselves as the religious leaders. You know, we've forgotten that we're all in the same boat. We're all in desperate need of grace from God every single day. You know, we make people feel judged, unworthy, lesser than by by snubbing up our noses at those who are different from us. And we miss the character and mission of Jesus, our Lord and Savior. We make ourselves the judge and jury instead of remembering that we're part of the rescue team. Remember the qualifications for throwing a stone, right? It was sinlessness. And that takes me out of the stone throwing business. How about you? To truly live and love like Jesus, we must never forget that he is full of grace and we, as recipients of his grace, must allow streams of living water to flow from us like we learned last week in John chapter 7, verse 38. We reflect the life and love of Jesus when we remember to show grace to others because we've received grace. Jesus is very clear that receiving grace and showing grace are linked together forgiving and being forgiven the same. 
James chapter two, verse 13 says this, judgment without mercy will be shown to anyone who has not been merciful. Mercy triumphs over judgment. You know, Paul, in the the first chapter of Romans, he describes the wickedness in each of us. He, He basically says that we've all sinned. And in chapter two, he reminds us not to think that it's them who've been doing the sinning, but instead reminding us our position. Listen to the message paraphrase of of Romans chapter two, verses one through four. Those people, referring to Romans one, they're, they're on a dark spiral downward. But if you think that leaves you on a high ground where you can point your finger at others, think again. Every time you criticize someone, you condemn yourself. It takes one to know one. Judgmental criticism of others is a well-known way of escaping detection in your own crimes and misdemeanors. But God isn't so easily diverted. He sees right through all such smoke screens and holds you to what you've done. You didn't think, did you, that just by pointing your finger at others, you would distract God from seeing all your misdoings and from coming down on you hard? Or do you think that because he's such a nice God, he'd let you off the hook? Better think this one through from the beginning. God is kind, but he is not soft. In kindness, he takes us firmly by the hand and leads us to radical life change. It's God's kindness that leads us to repentance. And it should be descriptive of how we live and how we love. We should never forget that Jesus is full of grace and seek to reflect and offer that grace to others. Christians are not perfect, they're forgiven. And that means that we should be the least judgmental in the world. We should value every person just like Jesus does. I believe this moment truly happened in the life of Jesus because it's consistent with scripture and the way that Jesus lived and loved and taught us to do the same. Listen to the parable that Jesus gives in Luke chapter 18, verses nine through 14. It describes this same scenario and how we should respond. Luke chapter 18, beginning in verse nine. To some who were confident of their own righteousness and looked down on everyone else, Jesus told him this parable. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood by himself and prayed, God, I thank you that I'm not like other people, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week and I give a 10th of all I get. But the tax collector stood at a distance. He would not even look up to heaven, but he beat his breast and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. I tell you that this man, rather than the other, went home justified before God. For all those who exalt themselves will be humbled and those who humble themselves will be exalted. You've probably heard the statement that the ground at the foot of the cross is level. That reflects Paul's statement in Romans 3, verse 23 and 24 that says, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God and all are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. True grace is transforming grace. When it transforms you, it should transform others. If you need that grace today, then receive it. And if you've received it, shower it on others. Don't be like the religious leaders who devalued others, use them for their games and dismiss their own guilt by deflecting it to others. Be full of grace, just like Jesus and live and love like him. This past week, I threw a fastball to our creative arts team. 
in preparation for this sermon, I really felt led to include a song that's by Bethel Music. It's called For the One. This song speaks about our reflection of Jesus' love. Let us be filled with his love, but also let us shower his love. And in just a few moments, they're going to sing this song. And I really appreciate their flexibility in them obliging me this request. But before they sing, I just want to let our church family know that as your leader, I'm sickened by the undeserved violence that we saw play out once again, fueled by racial uh, tensions in Minneapolis. We've seen multiple of these occasions happening again and again and again, not just recently, but historically. And that does not honor God. It does not reflect his heart. It does not model that kind of love. Now, I want you to know that this is unacceptable, that if we're called to live and love like Jesus, that we not only have to stand up and speak out, but we have to demonstrate his love to every person we lock eyes with, regardless of the color of their skin, regardless of their political persuasions, regardless of their ethnicity, regardless of their gender. That God has called us to love every person, just like his son Jesus did. That we've received grace. So let us show God's grace to others. And I pray the words of this song would, would not just encourage you, but they would convict you. And they would challenge all of us to live and love like Jesus. Listen to the words of this song. me be filled with kindness and compassion for the one the one for whom you love and gave your son for humanity increase my love so help me to love with do a love that erases all the lines and sees the truth so that when they look in my eyes they would see you even in just a smile they would feel the father's love the 
Jesus, we just want to be like you, to be a reflection of your heart. It's in your name we pray. Amen.